Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1645-1645. Today, our main part of the show, well, you judge what the main part of the show is today, because I have some important things to share with you. We have a client case study, another another new client case study that I think you will really enjoy. But first, I must comment. Are you amazed? I'm amazed. We are seeing some seemingly terrible things occur in the world. But at the same time, as the Chinese say, Crisis is an opportunity riding the dangerous wind. I've been sharing that with you for many, many years. And it is an opportunity riding the dangerous wind. We have seen massive question marks about our last, well, can I say it? E-L-E-C-T-I-O-N. You can't say it anymore because you might be censored. Uh, they installed, that's the right word, by the way, installed, they, meaning the powers that be, installed a new administration. Now, nobody trusts the system. And then we have seen this massive money creation. In fact, so much money was created out of thin air currency, I should say, of course. Of course, you know, you can correct me, listeners. Currency is the proper word, not money. Money has intrinsic value. Currency does not. But Admittedly, the two things are kind of used interchangeably, and hopefully everybody gets the difference. Hopefully they do. We saw so much currency creation last year, and we're about to see so much more this year that it absolutely boggles the mind. Now today, well, maybe it wasn't today, but it's in the news today, our friend Elon Musk, possibly uh, one of the most famous people on planet Earth, uh, good old Elon, uh, purchased one and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin cryptocurrency. Why does that matter? It does not matter because you want to become a cryptocurrency speculator. I hope you don't. That is a very volatile, risky asset class. I own some and, you know, I'm doing a few bets here and there. I, I think it's okay to speculate with a small portion of your net worth, but you better be prepared to lose it. Be prepared. Be prepared to lose it. But on the other hand, you know, it's a gamble and it could be a big win. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But what does that say about the systems? What does it say about the institutions? Well, According to yours truly, what it says 
is that we are literally witnessing right now at this time in history. Aren't you glad to be here for it? You have a front row seat, ladies and gentlemen, just like the cardboard cutouts at the Super Bowl yesterday. <laughs> they had a front row seat too. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe they don't give the cardboard cutouts the front seat. You know, I was talking with Ashley last night about the massive amount of environmental damage the pandemic has caused. I mean, think about it. Do they really need to waste all that cardboard to, to make it look like these venues are full of fake people? I, I mean, this is like another example of desperate, crumbling institutions. The, the, the idea that they would, first of all, cut down a whole bunch of trees damage the environment, create a whole bunch of pollution by making those cardboard cutouts, by shipping them there, by setting it up. Absolutely absurd, right? If they want to social distance, why don't they just have every other or every, you know, other two, you know, seats empty? Big deal. We all get it. We all know that there's a pandemic going on and they've got to make it look like like our goody two-shoes moron president, you know, always wearing his mask. He's sitting there at the Oval Office. There's nobody in the even in the Oval Office, yet he's got his mask on. Oh, I'm a goody, goody two-shoes. I'm setting the example. Yeah, right. Whatever. This is the, the last desperate gasp of so many big institutions, and it is a slap in the face to them. Nobody trusts the media anymore. Nobody in their right mind, right or left on the political spectrum, does not matter. We all know it's fake. We all know big tech is a scam. We all know social media companies are disgusting, pathetic, and awful, and evil, no matter what side we're on. You know, even those on the left who benefited from it cannot be stupid enough to see that what is going on is wrong. Right? It's wrong, right? Yeah, that's kind of how you got to look at it. So the institutions are not trusted. And now you've got all these multiple, this, this like eating away at the banking system, at the central banking cartel, at the treasuries and governments. And you've got this whole population that is not tied to any geography. Think about it. Think about how it used to be in the old days, right? In the old days, you know, if you had a, a certain skill and you were a factory worker, you might keep that factory job for your entire career. You know, back in the day when the U.S. used to actually uh, manufacture things, now we just outsource them to coal-burning China, the biggest polluter on Earth, because somehow... All of the folks who are running the world seem to have forgotten what famous Democrat John F. Kennedy said years ago. What did he say? We all breathe the same air. That's what he said. We all breathe the same air. But somehow it's okay to pollute China because the, the wind won't blow that pollution around the world, I guess. Whatever. Absolutely. You can't. This stuff is so stupid you can't even make it up. But... As we notice the institutions crumble, we are witnessing a time when people can just vote with their feet so easily. Now, granted, it's not 
as easy as it was before the Cervasa sickness began, but it's easy enough and people are taking advantage of it. They are geo-arbitraging in the U.S. on a state level and a city level. And then around the world, some people are still even now even doing it with other countries. If you had a certain skill, you were an auto worker in Detroit, you couldn't just move anywhere. You know, yes, when you move, you take the skill with you for sure, but it wasn't the mainstream thinking back then that you would just move. But even then, you could only go to a place that uh, manufactured the thing that you had a skill in pretty much, right? You weren't just going to, you know, get out of the automotive industry and go into another industry. And if you were a company or a business, most of the time, you had a physical plant of some sort. You had equipment. You couldn't just, you know, shut your laptop screen and move. Now you can. So we're seeing the institutions of socialistic, poorly run disaster areas like my home for most of my life, the Socialist Republic of California and the Socialist Republic of New York and, and many others, both in the, in the country and around the world, we're seeing them crumble. People can talk all they want. In fact, they can vote all they want. But at the end of the day, everybody knows that the most important vote is where people choose to locate and how they choose to spend their money. And whether they're spending their money on consumer goods or housing or taxes, right? That is the most important vote. It's not the vote that they're making for the politicians. So that is a very important thing to see. Make sure you notice this week, today, tomorrow, every day, the whole month, the whole year, forever, just notice how the credibility of institutions is just getting just decimated. The university debt enslavement complex, college tuition ripoffs, just decimated. Disastrous public schools, decimated. The credibility of the pharmaceutical industry, decimated. Just scam after scam after scam. We all now know the cat is out of the bag. Pandora is out of the box. We know that we cannot trust anybody. Resume notwithstanding. We know that Wall Street is a complete scam. We know that the new administration has been basically sold off to BlackRock. It's like a corporate takeover. That's basically what the new administration is. It's a corporate takeover of America. And nobody can trust the corporatocracy. So notice the crumbling institutions. But what does that mean to us as real estate investors? Oh, it means a lot. Because people are voting with their feet. And they're guess what? They're moving to the areas that we've been recommending that you invest in for many, many years now. And those of you who have listened have benefited greatly. So congratulations. Congratulations. Now, let's talk about the central banks and the government printing press. Not just the US, it's central banks all around the world. The ECB, the European Central Bank, is in trouble. The Federal Reserve is a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> 
Okay. I mean, look, folks, you can't hide this stuff anymore. It's so ridiculous that it just, we all know it doesn't work. And now Elon Musk has basically slapped that system in the face and said, you know what? I don't really trust keeping all of my corporate treasury in dollars or even in stocks or other assets of whatever kind. I want to slap that system in the face and I want to put $1.5 billion with a B, billion dollars, into a decentralized, uncontrolled, trustless asset. That's a pretty big statement against the institutions. So just keep watching them crumble, crumble, crumble. Crumble, crumble, crumble. Yep, that's what they're doing. Okay, before we get to our case study, and by the way, if I didn't make that connection well enough, maybe I'd, let me just make one more part of that connection. Elon's move is a move saying he is very worried about, guess what? What word do you think I'm about to say? <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It starts with an I. <laughs> Not like I, like I am saying it. The word starts with I. The word is, of course, inflation. That's the word. He is worried about inflation. And we, as income property investors, have aligned our interests with the forces who create inflation. And by the way, in all my rant about the institutions, I didn't even mention the whole Robin Hood scam, the GameStop issues, and that whole thing from last week, and Google deleting over 100,000 negative reviews. Google decided they were going to censor the negative reviews against Robin Hood because, God forbid, Google doesn't want the truth out there. <laughs> I mean, folks, we are witnessing a massive shift in history right now. And it's ugly, but it's also positive in many, many ways. Okay, I have been meaning to play a whole bunch of messages that I have been saving for you for so, so long, and I just haven't had the chance to. So let me get a couple of these out of the way now. They're random. They're on a variety of different topics, but I think you'll want to hear them. And we got to get through more of these, maybe on Wednesday's episode, and then we will get to our guests today. Uh, but let's get through a few of these messages. Jason, hi. Good morning. It's Johnny from Arlington, Virginia. Hope that the weather in the day is as beautiful there as it is here. It's uh, looking at 75 degrees. By the way, this is an old message. So the weather report doesn't doesn't um, doesn't follow. <laughs> I want to flag two things for you. I was watching or I was I was listening to a show on Thursday and. Um, I, I got to tell you, Jason, I, when it comes to Bitcoin, I was listening to the guy that you had on. Uh, I, I still, I've tried to learn about Bitcoin for two years. I've tried to understand like how it works, the, the value proposition of, it, of investing in it, and I just, I just still don't get it. I don't get how this can be treated as money or an alternative form of money. Um, I love the idea and the concept and like you, the decentralized quality of it. Um, 
if even if someone does go on what was it like Coinbase or something like that and buy Bitcoin, uh, you still hear about these cases where where people spend millions on Bitcoin and then they get hacked. Someone takes it and then it's gone, or it's on some laptop and some some twenty year old throws it away. Uh, doesn't realize that all of his bitcoins on his laptop, and then it's in some landfill somewhere. And they hear about stories like that, and uh, I just, I just don't see how it's any different than than investing in some other speculative investment. And to your point, I know that that, that your guest was talking about. Oh, you know, um, don't worry as much about the Federal Reserve shutting it down, but it's like. Federal Reserve is a powerful force, and if they don't want Bitcoin in the United States, they will make sure that Bitcoin is not in the United States. If they, if the U.S. government can physically confiscate gold um, by by force of law, certainly they can they can um, you know turn off the lights for Bitcoin. So that's just that's just my impression. I just I, I just don't get it. Uh, I'd rather invest in physical things like real estate where there's title, there's a building, there's at least a plot of land that you own. The the one thing that I do worry about in the long run is if people like AOC come into office more and more, or or whatever um, like minded politician that there would be, if there's lots of AOCs in the government, what's to prevent them from Increasing property taxes to confiscatory levels, three, four, five percent, and saying, "Hey, you guys can hold on to this property, but you gotta keep paying taxes." Well, if we can't afford to pay those taxes, then they start seizing houses, and boom, the federal government has this nationalized housing stock, and landowners or or uh, property owners are are just marginalized and made into peasants. That's unlikely, but. Lots of things are unlikely that have happened, so I don't know. I guess it's the one thing that I get concerned about. Um, would love to know your thoughts on that. Wonder Flag also, yesterday's show, the Flashback Friday, was awesome. Um, I really got a lot out of listening to that, out of hearing something that you had published from 2008. I need to go back and listen to more uh older episodes is because it kind of crystallizes the thought from that period that maybe we forget about um, the things that we had to think through as, as, a, as investors from 2008 that, you know, 2017, when the economy's hot, we kind of forget that we had to think in those ways. It really was a good exercise. So just wanted to tell you, I got a lot out of both episodes, but um, if anything, Thursday's episode where the guy was talking about Bitcoin, it made me all the more thankful that, um, that uh, I'm investing in real estate. Thanks. Okay, so that was a big message with a lot of stuff, and I don't really have time to dive down that rabbit hole today. But I will say, is, is since we are kind of talking about the cryptocurrencies and Elon Musk big move, you know, I, I think there are problems and opportunities with it. And uh, I just, uh, for for my main thing, you know, I, I think the income property is far and away the best asset class, the most historically proven asset class in the entire world because it's multi-dimensional and for so many other reasons it has such a big lobby behind it but i i just would love to be wrong about the crypto thing and elon's big move was pretty amazing and it's just a slap in the face to the institutions so i think we all have to think about that just remember the main product of any government 
and of course central bank is the currency they create and like any business look you're in business you create a product you know even if you don't have your own business you work for a business and they create a product and nobody loves competition okay for their product so just always remember that motivation you know bet conservatively if you're going to bet on this kind of stuff. All right. So uh, tonight, by the way, I, I must say we are revving up. I, I'm so proud of our team lately. We've been just doing great stuff to Property Tracker. It has this beautiful knowledge base component that we've just been expanding and expanding for many, many months now. And uh, it offers so, so much. Uh, so be sure you check out Property Tracker. If you are not using Property Tracker, you're really missing out, especially all of the educational components that we've added to it. And if you are not part of our Empowered Investor Inner Circle, you are also missing out because uh, we're having another one of our monthly meetings tonight. And uh, we're talking about a... Um, another technology tool. You know, I run those Zoom meetings myself. Everybody just says such great things about them. And also we have created a whole library uh, that's included in that membership of uh, uh, just fantastic video content. Uh, and we are really just, just expanding that all the time. You know, there's a lot of content that we create that we do not use on the podcast that you don't hear on the podcast. So be sure you're taking advantage of some of our other stuff like the Empowered Investor Network, Empowered Investor Inner Circle, I should say, and the, um, uh, the Property Tracker software as well. All right, without further ado, let's get to our guest and let's uh, talk about another client case study. Hey, it's my pleasure to welcome another client to the show. And everybody always loves these client case studies. This is Chad Hewitt, and he lives in the Seattle area. Actually, I think Everett, Washington, I believe, outside of Seattle. And Chad, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. So you own a construction scaffolding company, right? Correct. Yep. We put scaffold up, take it down. And uh, it's kind of like having little rental short-term rental properties because while the project's being built, we charge rental for the equipment. So it's kind of like having, you know, little apartment buildings that we're renting all over Seattle, but I'm just going to scaffold. That's cool. That's an interesting way to look at it. I, I like the way you, you look at that just like a real estate investor would. So that, exactly. that's, that's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you and your wife uh, were interested in triple net leases on commercial property. And, you know, I guess you were looking at like a, a common one is a drugstore, a Walgreens, uh, and you were looking at that deal. And just for people who don't know, a lot of times investors will buy these triple net properties. And, and triple net simply means that all the expenses pass through to the tenant. So these are liked by some people because they're sort of considered the most sort of hands-off form of real estate investing, where you just make everything the tenant's responsibility. You own the property, of course, but the yields are pretty low on most of these, you know, that people, people trade simplicity for low yield. And what I would think is that on the Walgreens CVS type model, because all of those are triple net lease type deals is, and I didn't say this to you before when we were talking off air, Chad, but I think they're overbuilt. And I think Amazon is just going to, 
pillage that business with their, they purchased a uh, prescription uh, company recently. And uh, I think that's the next wave is Amazonization. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't say it right. Um, and I think that's really going to hurt these, these drug stores. And I think they're already pretty overbuilt. I mean, you know, you go down any city in America and it's like you go a couple of main streets and you got a Walgreens on one corner uh, diagonally across. There's a CVS. Like, do we need this many drugstores? I don't think so. But d- tell us what got you interested in that and and your your story about getting in real estate. You read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I guess that inspired it, right? So I'll let you talk. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was inspired from uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Read that book when I was uh, in my early twenties, and and the light bulb went on about uh, you know using leverage and other people's money and the type of gains that you can, the minimum gains you can expect versus what you can expect on Wall Street. And it just didn't make any sense to me to to start pursuing a four hundred one k or anything like that. So um, as I began to build my scaffolding company, the the goal was as a cash flow vehicle to have money to buy real estate. So my wife and I had acquired a number of small properties locally, but then what I found is my wife is very hands-on. She's very frugal. She likes to go and do the move-ins, the move-outs, the cleans. If the toilet's broken, she wants to go fix the toilet. So that was fun <laughs> in the beginning, but that gets kind of old fast. If your Saturdays spent, you know, uh, changing out washers and dryers and unplugging toilets, it's really bit of a, a downer, right? Yeah. So then I started looking at a different vehicle that would be the most hands-off form of real estate from the rich dad, poor dad angle, they, they don't really have a big, you know, they're not really big, really big fans of single family uh, homes. They're more seem to be directed for multifamily. So for a lot of years, I was looking at potentially how I would get into a big apartment building, but then that seemed kind of daunting because I wanted it out of our area. So basically that it would be, a, it would be forced to be a hands-off investment like I intended real estate to be. And then the idea of having move-ins and moves out on, on 50 different Units that became a little bit daunting. So that then led me to the triple net arena where the thought of just buying a big box and being able to get good financing on it, the downside being that typically the average down payment on a triple net from what I was looking at was about 30 to 35%. So a considerable amount of money. And then they will only guarantee that loan or you can only lock that loan in for five, seven, maximum 10 years. So then when I started to think about it and weigh the risks, the rewards, what you're talking about, you know, are there a lot of, are they overbuilt at the end of that lease period? I'm then negotiating with a large company that I am just a fly on the wall. So they'll squash me like a bug if they want or squeeze me or break me down. And uh, that just didn't seem like, you know, the safety factor wasn't there. And then I uh, told you that I heard you on the George Gammon podcast. And you're kind of expounding on uh, the single family investment. And I started to relook at that in a completely different light. And I realized that was the best, safest place to park money of any place in real estate. And the idea that I used to have this thing that if you have a single family house, someone moves out, you're 100% vacant. But if you own 100 of them, it's so different than owning a 100-unit apartment building. And, and when someone lives in an apartment building, they're always waiting for the next step to be able to get that house. And because I think America's becoming a, you know, a, um, a nation of renters, right. they're going to be moving towards a rental house. And there's you know, no time, more time-tested asset. You said again and again, again, real estate. And um, yeah, so I, I ended up uh, purchasing. I talked to the wife about dipping my feet in the pool. And we would just buy one property. With you and I started talking to Evan, my investment counselor, and 
One turned into five, turned into six, which turned into <laughs> 11, which turned into 15. So I love it. I, I'm doing sound effects for that. <laughs> so you were just going to buy one of our single family homes through our network and you decided to buy 11. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah, because, you know, I, I told my wife, I said, one is not going to move the needle for it. Right. You know, we, because uh, another big thing was when I realized that you could also do cost segregations on these properties, you know, I looked at my tax situation and realized that in order to basically offset income, I needed to buy a certain amount of properties, certain amount of you know, value. And, and that's where we ended up at the number that we ended up at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That's great. And I'm really glad you didn't pursue the triple net stuff and you went with the single family homes instead, because, you know, it's very hard to disrupt the housing market. Uh, first off, as you know, being involved with the construction industry, and we're going to talk about something you said to me before we started about the cost and the regulations and so forth. But, you know, it's very hard to make new cheap product, which would disrupt the investment, right? Right. And it's, it's very hard to build. That's a disruptor. You know, nobody is outsourcing housing. They're outsourcing retail. They're outsourcing office space. They're outsourcing manufacturing. But you can't outsource housing. It needs to be where it is. And there's a, there's a huge shortage of it. So I, I think you made a very, very good decision. And I'm, I'm glad you made that decision to do the simple, proven, humble but very profitable single family homes. And that is yeah, the best that's, thing that's going, if you, if you and, ask me. And another thing I was going to point out, by the time that I identified these properties, and I'm buying all new construction properties, just as a side note, it's just the direction I want to go in. I'd like the least amount of problems possible. So I figured that buying brand new, you can't go wrong with that. Also, it helps on the cost segregation into things, I think, to buy a newer property. But the market is so strong and so crazy I mean, those properties all approved by the time that I had bought them at say 218,000 to the time that I got loans on them, they were all worth 240,000. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. uh, it's just, you're seeing all this money printing show up in, in hard assets. Right. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely amazing. And um, uh, the hard, it's, it's a good time to be long on hard assets especially income property. You know, it's interesting through all of this, Chad, you know, gold, I mean, everybody's talking about it, but it just hasn't been like anything that impressive. And you can't leverage it. You can't rent it out. It doesn't produce income. It has terrible tax treatment. It's just, you know, it, it's and now it's got a big competitor, which is cryptocurrencies. And, you know, those are so speculative and volatile. Yes, there have been some some big moves and some people have made money. But remember, the other side of all those people that made money are people that lost money. So, yeah, you know, there, there's a counterparty in every one of those upswings. OK, <laughs> definitely. I'm, in, I'm a gold investor, too. I keep a small part of my portfolio in, in gold. And that was just from the, the preachings of Robert Kiyosaki, but it hasn't really reacted the way that other hard assets have been. And I'm not too sure if that's manipulation or that could be a conversation for a completely different show, but yeah. I, I've been, yeah, I've been disappointed with, uh, with gold. I thought it was going to you know, break through 2000 and go to the moon and that never happened. You know, there there are those very logical arguments for it, but they just never seem to really happen. You know, the only time that really ever happened was in the 70s. I mean, yeah. it, it had a run in the last decade, but again, 
it frankly wasn't that significant compared to what happened in the 70s. And the fact that you can't leverage it, doesn't have the good tax treatment, can't rent it out, doesn't produce income, et cetera. It's just, you know, and it is manipulated. You know, I would encourage anybody listening who wants to know about gold manipulation and other precious metals uh, price manipulation to check out GATA, the Gold Antitrust Action Committee. And, you know, they they are the ones pursuing this, but they're not going to stop it. You know, it's it's just... Yeah, it's it's too big for any of us to yeah. do. But the, the one thing we can do is income property. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what the that's thing that I like about it is it's so scalable based on whatever situation you find yourself in. I mean, your properties that I was looking at in Memphis, although they're not new properties, you know, they're decent. They've got a roof over their head. They cash flow. They're eighty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And you can get into one of those for 20 percent down sixteen thousand dollars. I mean, anybody that has a, a decent paying job can save $16,000. It's not the barrier to entry. Isn't like uh, you need a million five to get into a Walgreens or something. So it's, uh, right. it's available for anybody, no matter where you're at, I feel like in uh, your investing career. I agree. Or you can ramp it up. Like we've got one client who closed on a big portfolio last week and he wants to have 500 units. So, uh, you know, he's on his way. He's, he's doing big stuff and, uh, it's it's really fun to see, see these people grow. Um, what kind of goals do you have with it? I mean, you're, you're up to the 11 properties now, plus you probably have your own home. Anything else? Well, I mean, I have an overall portfolio right now that's worth about $12 million. My complete portfolio, I've got some different properties. I've got a big commercial property. I've got a VRBO property in Hawaii that I literally think I just sold before we got on the air here that uh, I got rid of just because I was listening to you. I'm thinking this thing's worth about as much as it's going to be worth. And, and the VRBO market has dropped off. Everyone's cutting each other's throats to get those things rented now. And I've yeah. got equity tied up that could go somewhere else. So my you know, goals are always changing too, right? If you want to get to 10, that was my first goal to get to a $10 million portfolio. I got there. And then the next goal for me is a $20 million portfolio. And I think I can get there with um, just continuing to add single family homes, you know, to what I already have. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. That's awesome. So you wanted to talk about uh, cost segregation, I think a little bit. Oh, but before we do that, actually, Chad, which markets are you in? Which markets did you buy in? So I'm in uh, Memphis. I'm in Huntsville, Alabama. And Good choice. I'm, yeah. in, uh, I'm in three different places in Florida. I'm in Ocala, in Northport, and in Port Charlotte. Okay, good, good stuff. So you got the Florida market covered, got uh, Alabama, so you got the commercialization of space working for you, and Memphis, which is just great cash cow logistics. Uh, so you, you've got a nice variety there. Now, don't over-diversify, okay? No, no, I, I think I'm pretty yeah. good with those markets. I picked Memphis just because the cash on cash return was higher. The appreciation isn't really there. I'm still, I feel like it's a little bit of both. And I think Florida overall probably has the 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 over the long haul is probably the, the highest potential to appreciate. That's just my own personal opinion, just based on supply and demand. But either which way I bought them, not for appreciation, I bought them for cash flow. They're all rented or and, I mean, as soon as they're built within a, a week or 10 days, they will have tenants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Good stuff. Good stuff. So I would encourage you to kind of double down in those markets for the new ones that you buy for your next round and, uh, and just get more in those same markets for ease of management, because you've got some decent diversification already. So cost segregation, what questions or thoughts did you have about that? Well, I know for me, uh, you know, I, I bought these properties uh, in part uh, because of the cost segregation with uh, the Trump tax cuts, which I think are sunsetting if I'm not 
uh, mistaken on the bonus depreciation. So I, I took that as an opportunity to buy things I was already going to buy and get you know uh, tax incentives to do so. But I'm curious on your thoughts on why someone wouldn't do a cost segregation on property. I know why I would. I'm just curious if you have a counter to that. Yeah. So, uh, so first off, just for those who don't know, income property is the most tax favored asset in America because you can depreciate it. And depreciation is a good thing. This is in a good way, meaning you get to take a non-cash deduction or a phantom deduction, as I sometimes refer to it, where you're not paying for the deduction. You're not writing a check to take a tax deduction, like if you donated to charity or spent money on your business. So it's a really fantastic tax benefit depreciation. And you can depreciate a residential property over 27.5 years and a commercial property over 39 years. So that's another advantage, by the way, of residential. You get faster depreciation, meaning more tax benefits. But what you can do is you can take some of the components of these properties and you can itemize them specifically because they have accelerated depreciation. For example, appliances in the house or the HVAC unit or uh, other certain components of the house, you know, the air conditioners, the HVAC or the, uh, the furnace, you know, those depreciate at a faster rate. And so you can itemize these, these items and you can depreciate them over say five years or seven years. Right. And, you get a CPA usually to do your cost segregation analysis, or it's also called cost seg for short. Okay. And so they'll charge you a little bit of money. And on a single family home, you can get this done now more and more. It used to be cost prohibitive on a single family home, but nowadays you can get this done for usually between 500 and a thousand dollars per property. And it will usually save you a lot more than it costs you because you can depreciate these things faster, take faster to Deductions. So that's a, a long explanation. But the reason you wouldn't want to do it is I can't really think of too many reasons not to do it. I guess, Chad, you know, the expense, you're going to have to pay a little bit of money for the cost seg report. Okay, so that you can do it. And that's going to cost you $500 to $1,000 per house. And then also, all you're really doing with the cost seg is you're just bringing the future closer to you. And so you are getting the advantage of the time value of money, because I'd rather have a tax deduction today than later, right? So that's good. But you're not changing the tax deal overall, you're just accelerating it. Okay. So, you know, I guess from that component, it's not like a grand slam home run, but I think it is a good deal. And I think it's good to do. Uh, I can't think of too many reasons not to do it. You know, it takes a little bit of work, a little bit of time, but you know, also keep in mind with everything that you do, there's not just the economic component. You do learn something from doing it, right? So just by doing these cost seg analysis and reading the report after you get it back from the CPA, you're going to learn something about it. And that'll be, you know, in education, right? But you only need to do a couple of them to learn something, right? You don't need to do, if you have 30 houses in your portfolio, you don't need to do 30 of them, (laughs) right? But but you might want to economically. So that, that would be my answer. Yeah. yeah I, like I said, it, it makes all sense for, for me to do them, but um, some people, I guess, and then you have to, if you sell the property, you have to recapture the game. So it is kicking the can down the road a little right. bit, right? Right. But if you do a 1031 exchange, you bury that recapture into the exchange. So you don't okay. recapture. Oh, that was okay. something I was, I was worried about it. If you sold it and then 1031, 
you don't have to do the recapture. No, no, because the recapture is buried into the exchange calculation. And so it, it just keeps going over to the next property and the next property. And you can do that your whole life. And then when you die under current law, you know, the basis steps up to market value for your heirs. Now, again, we always need to make the disclaimer, we're not lawyers, we're not tax experts, you know, consult the appropriate professional disclaimer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there you, you go. Biden is going to eliminate the 1031 exchange. What kind of rules do you think are going to affect real estate for the new taxes? Yeah. Administration? Good question. You know, we have talked about that on the show. You probably heard us talk about that on the podcast. And um, it's a possibility. There is some talk of it. But, you know, housing and real estate are just kind of this like sacred cow. And it's very hard to get away with doing anything to hurt real estate. Because first off, it affects like everybody. You know, it's not this this fringe element that's not going to screw up your your political career, right? It's just like everybody's in real estate in one way or another, right? Yeah. And so it has such like wide-ranging effects and there's so many people lobbying against any of this that I don't know. Even if he wants to, it probably he'd probably be hard pressed to make it happen. Uh, go ahead. If you had something on the tip of your tongue, but I want to ask you about construction costs. Cause you, oh, you said something. What about. I was going to get into next was just, we were talking before we got on uh, a recording here about you asked me about how Seattle's market was. And, and I noticed a spike of new apartment projects coming in, you know, to get bids on. And I kind of asked around to a developer friend of mine and I said, is there, you know, what's going on? And he said, uh, apparently there's a new energy code coming in, you know, green new deal stuff where the, the cost to develop your average apartment building is going to go up something astronomical. So everyone was just racing to try and get their permits in so that they can build before they have to, you know, comply with the new energy code permit. So that's just going to make, you know, they, they try to make more affordable housing and, and do anything that the government tries to do. They just end up screwing up because no one's going to afford to build these things or buy them or live in them or whatever the case may be. So that's basically the big thing I see going on my mar in my market is just an influx of people trying to get permits before they have to acquiesce to this new energy code. Yeah. You know, the, the government, yeah, I mean, they, they have created the homelessness problem, uh, not only by shipping the jobs overseas and, you know, not helping the veterans enough and all of this, but by all of these regulations on housing, they've just made it so expensive to comply with the the requirements and especially in places like Seattle and California you know I'm talking about Seattle like it's a state it's obviously just a city but you know it's run like its own little fiefdom and uh so it, it's just you know they're just making it so hard you know they can't deliver low-cost housing anymore the, you just can't do it no and one interesting thing about low-cost housing is it's always built by the government. And if you actually look, when you go to apply to do that job, we're a non-union company, right? So when we go to do one of these low-cost housing projects, we have to pay prevailing wage. So everyone gets paid a set amount of money. It's the highest wage bar that they have. So when you look at the cost to build what they call, quote-unquote, affordable housing in the government-run sector, the private sector could have built it for about half as much if they are actually... <laughs> You know, if they if they let it to the free market. So, yeah. you know, I'm a free market guy and I just don't understand anybody that anything the government touches, they just absolutely 
they just destroy it. And I don't know how many more times you need to prove that. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely true. I mean, the government, we need a government to do a few things, but let's just keep it to a minimum because, uh, you know, it's it's like Reagan said, you know, the most dangerous words are, I'm I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Run for the hills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's just though it's just the nature of the beast. It really is. But um what you were saying, uh just I don't know if that point was totally clear, Chad, is that you're seeing this boom in construction because all of these developers are rushing to build before they have to comply with these new requirements coming down the pike that'll make their cost of construction like 30% higher. So see how that's distorting the market. It's causing overbuilding right now in these apartments, right? And then later it will cause a shortage of supply because no one will want to build. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, these people are just all racing to get their permits. They're not even going to break down yet. They just have to get their permit. And then I think they've got 18 months from permit to actually start digging a hole in the ground, yeah, uh, whatever the case may be. But that's that's there's definitely things coming down that are going to uh, distort the market. Yeah, it just uh, it doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. But um, but hey, uh, you know, I appreciate you sharing your story. And um, is there anything else we should talk about? Um, you know, questions, thoughts, goals, ideas, uh, anything you want to run by the audience? No, I think I just wanted to share my experience that, um, you know, it, uh, it's from someone that's looked at all different angles of real estate, totally bypassing single family, coming right back around to that being the best place to park your money and you guys being probably the best company to deal with, uh, you know, in order to make that happen. So I just wanted to share my story and uh, thank you for the service that you're putting out there for people and the education that you have on your website and your podcasts. And uh, just, uh, just a thank you for me. Hey, well, thank you for your business. We really appreciate it. And it's, you know, it's an honor to serve you and other clients like you. And we just wish you super, super success, Chad, and, uh, and happy investing. And thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.